I have to clear my throat. Hi, it's Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio. How are you? Welcome. Welcome back to this lovely show, uh, which, as you know, is where we highlight idealists and idealism. And as you are listening to an idealist in chief, that would be me, Ellie Krug, you know I am someone trying their darndest to make this world of ours a much better place. That's what this show is all about. Oh my God, do we have a show for you today? Oh, the big interview is with none other than CNN writer and now memoir author, John Blake. You you will absolutely love hearing from John. Let me, I'm just, make, make sure you've got the cup of coffee or the glass of wine or whatever it is that just sit there when you get the interview, okay? I'm just going to tell you, okay? And as always in my C block, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> All right, but here in our A block, okay, I always talk about an idealist or an idealistic organization. And, um, and today I want to talk about an organization um, that has an incredibly important mission, which is about changing the landscape of America as it relates to gun violence and gun safety. I'm focusing on this because on Thursday night, just a couple nights ago, a couple days ago, I was the keynote speaker at a DFL, a non-Minnesotans, that's Minnesota's version of the Democratic Party. I was at one of their fundraisers. And one of the speakers before me was a representative of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Before hearing uh, this before hearing this person speak, her name uh, is Jenna Cruz, and I hope to eventually have her on this show. Uh, before th Thursday, I had heard the name Moms Demand Action, but I really didn't understand what the group is or does. So here I am to tell you about it, because it is incredibly idealistic. Um, to begin, Moms Demand Action was founded by Shannon Watts, who at the time uh, uh, of when the Sandy Hook shootings occurred, in 2012, um, in December of 2012, she was the mother, a mother at home with five children. After Sandy Hook, after that horrible tragedy which killed 26 children and educators, she wrote on Facebook about the need for greater gun safety. <clears throat> From there, a grassroots movement began, and soon Moms Demand Action started to form chapters across the country. According to Moms Demand Action's website, which you can go find by just Googling Moms, Moms Demand Action, the organization now has chapters in all 50 states. The organization has several initiatives, has several goals. First and foremost is working to have background checks for all gun buyers in the country. Presently, uh, only half the states require gun show or online sellers to conduct background checks on gun purchasers. As a result, guns are still available to convicted felons, domestic abusers, and fugitives in the states that don't require backroom check, background checks at gun shows or online sales. I mean, how, you know, just why can't we ask people to tell us if they're a felon and let us find out if they're lying by doing a background check with the local government authorities. Another initiative of Moms Demand Action is responsible gun storage. On its website, Moms Demand Action cites the statistic 
that every year, can you believe this? Every year, 700 children ages 17 and under die by suicide, die by suicide with gunshot. 700 kids taking their lives with a gun. Um, That's because the guns are accessible to them in their home. Um, You know, and as, and, and the statistic is even more. I mean, additionally, in general, firearms are the, listen to this, firearms are the leading cause of death among children in the United States. That means more kids die from guns than they do from car wrecks or drownings or other accidents that kill children. Think about that. Guns are killing our kids more than anything else. As a result, Moms uh, Demand Action uh, has created the SMART, S-M-A-R-T, model for gun safety. It's an acronym. Um, It's in part about normalizing conversations about guns in the home. So here's the acronym SMART, S-M-A-R-T. The S stands for Secure All Guns in Homes and Vehicles. The M, I'm spelling out SMART here, the M uh, stands for modeling, model responsibility, modeling responsibility, responsible behavior around guns. So have people who, who model that they're being very, very responsible with their gun usage. Ask, A, ask on SMART, ask about the presence of guns in the home. R, recognize the role of guns in suicide. And then T, tell peers to be smart. And trust me, okay, so trust me, there are many survivors of those who take their lives um, with guns. There are. Uh, Some of you know that I have uh, that status Uh, myself. My father um, uh, killed himself with a revolver in 1990. And as Jenna related, Jenna Cruz related at the FL dinner on Thursday, when her children are asked to stay over at a friend's house, among the things that she asked the parent of the friend. So, you know, Johnny's going to come over. Uh, you know, uh, Steve has asked Johnny to stay over at your house over, you know, I'm calling you to make sure that that's okay. Make sure that you're at home. You know, um, you know, is there any food allergies or something? If Johnny's going to bring, you know, something over with him that we should be aware about in the house. And what Jenna said is you include in that conversation. Oh, and by the way, do you have firearms in your home? And by the way, do they have safety locks? Are they, you know, are they secured? Are the firearms secured in the house? And she's like, you just normal have to normalize these conversations. And and I've got to tell you, I'm in the audience hearing her say, these are the conversations that we now need to have. And I'm thinking, how incredible in our country that we have to ask if we're going to send our six-year-old for a sleepover or a 10-year-old for a sleepover at a house, that we have to be worried about whether they have an unsecured gun in their house. But that's what that's where we're at as a country. Um, so, and as part of this, the Minnesota chapter of Mons Demand Action are giving away, you know, free gun locks. Wonderful. This is all a big deal, okay? Because how many times do we hear about a toddler finding a gun in the household and then playing with it, and either harming themselves or harming another child in the home? And what about the school shootings? That we've, that we've had that have occurred when a child has gotten a gun out of the house that was unsecured and taken that gun to school and then used it. 
I don't know. Given America's gun culture and the hundreds of millions of guns that America, Americans collectively own and our fascination with gun culture, I think that Moms Demand Action is an incredibly important, idealistic organization. They are trying to move the needle against a system, think NRA, uh, that refuses to take action to reduce the ho- horrific gun violence our country experiences. I highly recommend that you go online, read about Moms Demand Action, and if possible, financially support the organization. I do. Okay, that's my uh, featured idealist, idealistic organization for, the, for this show. Next up is the big interview with John Blake. Go, as I said, get your coffee, get your glass of wine, Get your beer, whatever you want to do to sit down, because for 24 minutes, you're just going to be fascinated and you're going to love hearing from this human, John Blake. All right. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug and Ellie 2.0 Radio. When we come back, we'll do the big interview with John Blake. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Follow me on X, formerly Twitter, at Ellie Krug. Okay? Thanks. We'll be back in a sec. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. Okay, so do as I asked, please. Um, And go, you know, go check out uh, Mom's Demanding Action. Go do that because it's an incredibly important organization. Now, though, I am, like, totally psyched. Totally, like, on planet Mars because I get to reprise my older interview with John Blake, who is here in live, well, not live in the station, but online live to talk about his most recent book. John, welcome back to Early 2.0 Radio. I am thrilled to have you here. Thank you for having me, Ellie. John, let me just give the audience a little bit of uh, 211 about you. So everyone, John Blake, and I'm reading from the official bio, is an award-winning journalist at CNN.com, the online site for CNN. He's, auth- he's the author of More Than I Imagined, Uh, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. That's where, and we're going to talk about that book that just came out in May. John has been honored by the Associated Press, the Society of Professional Journalists, the American Academy of Religion, the National Association of Black Journalists, the Religion (laughs) Communications Council, and with GLAAD Media, from which he got an award. John, you are incredibly accomplished. You know I follow you on CNN. You write a great deal about about skin color and, and, and disparities and, and, and the, how we treat each other differently because of, of being other. And I wanted to have you back on because your, your memoir came out. Again, the title of the memoir is More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. And I, needed to ha- I wanted to have you on this station, on the show, to talk about your book. So, John, give us a little bit, if you would, First of all, welcome back. Thrilled that you're here. Give us a little bit about uh, the book, a little bit about the synopsis, and then I got like five million questions, most of which we won't get to. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so the story is is about race and faith. It's kind of like a detective story, a little bit of a conversion story, a story about racism, and there's even a little bit of a supernatural thriller yeah. kind of you know tossed in. But primarily it's about me... Uh, trying to understand my mom and her role in my life. 
And the reason I focus on my mom is because I had a really peculiar relationship with her. Um, I was born in West Baltimore in the mid 60s when interracial marriage was illegal in much of the country. My mom's white, my father's black. And my mom disappeared from my life not long after I was born without any explanation. And so when I grew up, the only thing I was told about my mom was she's white, her name is Shirley, and her family hates black people. So the story is about me trying to find out who she was, who she is, why does her family want nothing to do with me because my father is black, and trying to find a way to reconnect with them and become a family. And and it, and so and the book takes us on a journey. I mean, you are you are on a journey throughout this book, and 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 tell us, give us the setting, okay, about West Baltimore where you're growing up, okay? Yeah. So if there's any, probably one of the worst places in this country where you want to have a white mom is where I grew up, and that is West Baltimore, in Maryland. And my uh, neighborhood is notorious for several reasons. Uh, it was the setting for the HBO series The Wire, which was a series about how racism uh, devastated this inner city black community. It was also the center of this really big racial protest in 2015 yep. when the National Guard was called out and the city just shut down for two weeks. And that was called the Freddie Gray protest. Freddie Gray was yep. a black man who died in police custody. Yep. So an environment I grew up in, it was all black. We hardly ever saw white people. And so it was very inconvenient to have a white mom. So I would not tell people that I had a white mom. I became a closeted biracial person. I was ashamed to have a white mom. I wanted nothing to do with her and her family. Well, and I, you know, as I was reading the book, I was struck by the fact that you and I had, you know, polar opposites. I grew up in an all white neighborhood, you know, yeah. out in Iowa. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. know, without a single person of color in the whole, you know, three or 400 home neighborhood, you know, and so my experience with intera interacting with people of other skin colors was very limited. Although my father had a business, he ran an office and he did have um, some people of color that would come for Sunday dinner, which was wonderful, which gave me my only experience. Um, so, all right. So bring us along. Tell us how, how was it? I mean, you became interested in who your mother was and you start down the journey of finding out some some yeah. things about her that that at first really put you off, um, but over time you you know you softened. Yeah, so I wanted nothing to do with my mom, but I had no choice when I turned seventeen, and that's when my father called me into his bedroom one day while he was watching The Price Is Right on television, and he just asked me, "Do you want to meet your mom?" And it was a bombshell. I thought she had died, wanted nothing to do with me. So three days after that question, I was driven along with my younger brother, Patrick, to this really menacing red brick building in the countryside of Maryland. And uh, I was told I was going to meet my mom. And we entered into this waiting room. And um, while we were waiting, we could hear people moaning in pain in the background. And we was trying to figure out where we are. A hospital orderly escorts this thin white woman into the room. She sees us, her eyes light up, and she says, oh boy, John, oh boy, Pat, it's so good to see you. And she comes up to me and she hugs me, and it's my mom. It's the first time I'm seeing her as an adult. 
And I didn't know what to do because I, I had never even used the word mom before. <laughs> but I also felt uncomfortable because where we were standing, we were in the waiting room of a mental institution. My mom had schizophrenia, a severe form of mental illness. So she had been confined into that place for the long, for most of her life. And I don't know, I still don't know if she was confined there totally because of her illness, but also because of racism. Back in the mid-60s, my mom was Irish Catholic, with the church would sometimes do with wayward uh, young Irish women who had biracial children. They would institutionalize them. But mm-hmm. so that's the first place that I saw my mom. And what was significant about the meeting, besides the obvious one, is that it is the first time in my life that I felt empathy toward a white person. When I saw her, that she had suffered like this, I had never seen a white person like that. I didn't know that a white person could suffer like a black person. Jeez. <laughs> well, well, and you, and even more so, you, you, I, I'm, I'm going to assume you wouldn't have thought that because the stories yeah. that you heard about your father having yeah. interaction with your Yes. What would be your your grandfather, your mother's father? Okay. Right. Tell us tell us about that because those were horrible interactions. Yeah. So my father was a, a merchant seaman. He was a very brave man. He literally took his life in his hands, as did my mom, to date one another as they did during the time. But um, whenever he talked about my mother's family, I, I just heard stories about monsters. When he first went to date my mom, for example, he knocked on her door and her father answered the door instead, physically attacked him, called him the N-word and called the police on him and had him arrested. And in those days, you call the police on a black man visiting a white woman. Right. Um, you could that black man could get killed by the police. So those are the kind of stories I heard from them. They were stone cold racist. Right. No. And just just horrible Horrible stuff. You know, when you were on the show last time, we talked about this concept of radical integration. You right. know, I call it the power of human familiarity. You know, but it's, what it is is just it's about exposure to right. other humans who are different right. than you. And then right. because we're human and because most of us have good, kind, compassionate hearts, we soften. Tell right. us about... So... I. I I'm going to jump around a little bit in the book, okay? And I want to come back. I wa- certainly want to talk about Aunt Sylvia, okay, who just was so imp- – I, I just saw you smile, okay? Yep. But 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 you eventually make your way to Harvard – or, excuse me, Howard, okay? Right. You know, the premier, you know, historically black college in America. And you start to encounter other, you know, young black people – who have a whole totally different experience than you as it relates to interacting with white people. Will you tell us about that? And, 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 and you know, and what I was struck by was be- because of the messaging that you got from society before you went to Howard was that y- you, and, and help me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but you started to think that you were not as smart as white kids, that you were not as smart as other people because the messaging that society had sent to you. But tell us about your experience at Howard. Yeah, Howard is like the premier black institution, uh, of premier college or university. To give you an idea of what it was like, Kamala Harris was one of my classmates at the time. And um, thing about Howard is I had to make a huge adjustment because I had never been around black people like Kamala Harris. I had 
in the world I grew up in, the neighborhood I'm known for, uh, the neighborhood that I come from is known for its violence, right. you know, just tremendous violence. But what I say is there a type, there's another type of spiritual violence that you experience when you grow up in a place like that. And that is you absorb these lessons that you don't, you're not smart, that you don't belong, that you can never escape that place. And that's what I felt at Howard. It wasn't so much I was just intimidated by white people. I was intimidated by black people who were educated, who came from middle class and wealthy backgrounds. So that was one of the big adjustments I had to make. And I almost self-sabotaged myself and prevented myself from um, graduating. But in the end, I graduated from honors with Howard because I had a lot of help from really beautiful people. So uh, what? give us the years that you're at Howard's because I, I was you know, from 82 to 1987. You know, you know, I mean, that is not so long ago at all. And, you know, long ago, but yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the help that you got. Okay. Right. Because you had an aunt, you yes. know, I mean, your, your father was a merchant Marine. And by the way, he taught you about radical integration as well, because he talked yeah. about being on the ships in World War II, where they were integrated, you know, and how, but why the, by the fourth, you know, voyage, everybody, Right. Didn't, they didn't care what skin color you were and all of that stuff. But your father was away a lot. And you and you and your brother, Pat, had to go and stay in, quote unquote, foster homes or all of that. And you had this Aunt Sylvia who came and rescued you. Tell us about her and, and the importance, because, John, I'm a big believer in having a mentor in life, having somebody that is your you know, touchstone as you go forward in life. Yeah. So I spent most of my childhood in foster homes because my father was away overseas, usually about eight months or so out of the year. And my, my mom was absent. And so that was very difficult, as you can imagine. But one of the things that really helped me was that I had this aunt, my father's sister, who would watch me and my brother over the weekend. And she was what I call my lighthouse in a sea of chaos. She's the one that gave me books. She's the one that made me believe in myself. And what I learned from that experience is that when you're a kid and you're going through something like that, sometimes all you need is that one person who believes in you and you hold on them for dear life. And she was that one person for me and my brother, Patrick. It sure sounded like, and you, you just made her magnificent. I wish I had had an Aunt Sylvia yeah. as I was reading your book. I really... I, I, but I did also have someone. I had I had an uncle Ed, and that that was very important to me as well. So he helped me a great deal. Okay, so um, so bring us along. Okay, so you go to Howard, and then you end up eventually down in Atlanta. You meet another mentor down there who helps you with your faith and right. and understanding about God. Pa Pastor Nibs, tell us about him. So as I go from Howard and I become a journalist. There's a parallel journey. I'm starting to meet other members from my mom's family, other white members of my family. And these are people who I only saw as racist who rejected me. And so it was very difficult as I began to meet them to try to establish a relationship with them. But one of the things that helped me is that I happened to join a church that was interracial. So as I was joining this church for the first time in my life, I began to be, become friends with white people. You know, you, I would pray with them, hug them, all these type of things. And what one of those things, what that did is that it really helped me also reconnect with the white members of my family, because 
as I started to reconnect with them, that Christian language of love, forgiveness, th those kind of things. I know it sounds kind of sappy to some people, but that helped us find the common language and the common bond. And I say this not to proselytize. I'm saying that it was crucial that I was in an interracial community. It could have been a 12-step program. It could have been a bowling league. It could have been a military, whatever. But the important thing was that I had these close, sustained, authentic relationships with someone of another race. That was the thing that decisively yep. changed me. There's that radical integration again, right? right? It just really yeah. is. And so, um, so you're going through all of this process. Your mother had a sister. Yeah. Okay? Tell her, tell us about her because she, she wrote you letters yeah. regular. I mean, and, and you would, you wouldn't read the letters. You just, because she was still part of that racist white family. Yeah. Tell, tell us about your aunt. This is my aunt Mary. And to me, she's one of the most important characters in a book. And she is the answer to a, a question that I've long had as a journalist who has covered racism in this country for over 20 years. I've often concluded like, wow, I don't think enough white Americans can really change. And then I thought, wait a minute, look at Aunt Mary. Aunt Mary was someone who was unabashedly racist. When I met her, she didn't even see the need to apologize for not right. being in my life. But as time went on and we developed this relationship, a lot of it was through letters, then meetings, difficult phone conversations. She stopped being my enemy, you know, this white woman who wanted nothing to do with me and became family, Aunt Mary. And this same person today is someone who has like Black Lives Matters, uh, you know, signs on her lawn. She sends me books like The Killing Mockingbird and Right Fragility. She has really changed. And so it's taught me that we often see, I think sometimes black people see uh, white people as you either racist or you're not, and there's no in between, but people are complex. People yeah. like Aunt Mary taught me that people can change and there's a lot of complexity. And so she's very important to me. Well, and I'm watching our time here, John. Um, sure. will, you, will you talk to the audience about, I mean, eventually you and your mom became yeah. close. Okay, yeah. and 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 all of that division, all of that separation yeah. ended. Tell us how did that happen, and 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 tell us about your mom towards the end. Yeah, it happened through a, a lot of time. When I first met her, I was disappointed as a young man because first I was ashamed of having a white mother, and then I was ashamed of having a mom with a mental illness. But as time went on, I began to see that that person who defied her family and her community to be with my father was still there. It just took me a while to see it. And then we became extremely close. And she really helped me a lot. A lot of the pessimism that I absorbed in my job, she kind of erased a lot of that. Because to see somebody like that who, who has really been away from her family, who suffered so much because they chose to be with a black man, but yet they still have faith, yet they can still laugh at themselves, yet they can still sing. She became one of the, the most courageous people I've ever met. So yeah, she's a huge inspiration to me. Well, I just, you know, what, your book is, John, it's just so touching because you, you just write it as a human. It's very, you know, it, it's just very down to earth and and we understand as we're going along that we've started somewhere 
we, we know we're going to go somewhere else, but we didn't expect to have some of the, you know, stops along the way. What, what do you think? Let's just talk here from the macro perspective, okay? And what are you getting from a reaction from the public? Um, because you're, what do you think your book represents right now in America in September of 2023? I think it represents something that we rarely see in any story about race, and that is concrete hope. <laughs> Not just kind of Hallmark card kind of hope, but a real gritty hope that looks at how complex people can be, that looks at how difficult racism, structural racism, all of it can be, but yet shows that people you never thought could change could change in ways you, you never expected. And that's my mom, that's my Aunt Mary, and that also includes myself. Well, and, and so what reaction are you getting, you know, to the book? I mean, are you getting like a million requests for book clubs and, and, and speaking? And, and, and It's been really good. It, I'm, I'm getting, yeah, a lot of requests. I'm supposed to uh, actually go to, yeah, I'm getting a lot of requests to speak. And, but the, the best stuff is when I go online and people are sending me emails, people who are so different from me come from very different worlds but they're saying that I can relate to your story and I really felt it. And it's, it's been, it's, it's made, you know, you look at the news and you think the country's coming apart, yep. but when you, I think there are a lot more people out there that, that have not given up on one another, that have not given up no. on this country and are, are so exhausted by the divisions that they crave a real story about whole, not a, a false sentimental one, but a real one. And that's the kind of message I'm getting. Well, and I hope you're putting all those emails in a special folder. I've got one. It's it's titled "Good Stuff." <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, because I figure someday when uh, you know I'm on my death, you know, last few breaths, somebody will be reading those to me. Yeah. Well, what's next for you? Okay. I mean, you continue to write about skin color, but but John, the reason I adore you, and then I'm I'm telling you that, okay, um, is that you really always do look at the positive of things. You, you lay it out, you lay out the facts, okay, but you give us always a pathway on how to get past it. And John, we need so many more of you. So what's next for you? Well, thanks. I, I hope to write more stories like that because one of the things I learned from the book is that what I say is you can give people a book, you can you know, give them how to be an anti-racist, you can take them to a protest, but nothing changes people like a relationship. Facts don't change people, relationships do. So what's next, I hope to keep on telling those type of stories because one of the things, this book has really caused me to relook at how I look at myself as a journalist. If And I tell myself, if I'm only writing about the problems, I become part of the problem. So what I hope to do is also write more hopeful stories that give people hope because I think we really need that right now. Well, your book is, it, it gave me great hope. And I, I'm positive that we'll give just about every reader that kind of hope. And, you know, you and I have talked before when we had you on the show, you're, you're an idealist, you know, somebody trying to make a positive difference in the world. And I know your book, your book is doing that and it will continue to do that. Now, if our listeners want to grab your book, how can they find it? Just let's make sure that we get you a little yeah. plug here. It's still in like the the big, you know, the bookstores like Barnes and Noble, but you can also get it uh, Amazon, a lot of online bookstores. It's it's pretty, 
pretty accessible so far. Yeah, or people can do what I did, which was I went to my local bookstore and I asked mm -hmm. them to order the book, even though it would have been way easier for me to go to Amazon and get it. But at least it kept the local bookstore in the loop. I, I, I think I prefer that we need independent bookstores. So, yes, they've been very kind to me. So, yes, we absolutely do. Well, John Blake, um, it has been, again, an absolute pleasure to have you on my show. I um, will continue to follow you. You know that. OK. And, uh, um, you know, I'm going to. I, I do want you to hopefully we can work something out with all of my friends in Carver County and we can get you online and do a book, you know, like a book club. That'd be something you'd be willing to do. Yes. Right. Yes. yes. You know, and um, and I don't know, maybe I'll talk to my school district about having you come online at least. And uh, because I think our kids. Oh, man, I think our kids would benefit greatly from hearing from you. So well, thank you. All. And thank you for what you do. Yes, you're community, your, your storytelling, being involved in politics, just caring and not checking out, you know, because of cynicism. So I appreciate that. Thanks, John. I appreciate that as well. All right. Well, my best to you, my friend. Good luck. Keep up the good writing and just be well. Okay. Thank you. you too. Okay, everyone. That was John Blake, um, who is the author of brand new memoir, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. I can attest to it. The book is Great. Whoops. Make sure you go get it. All right, John, take care. Listeners, okay. when we get back, we'll um, do my C block where I'll talk about my work as an idealist. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Bye bye. I'm back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. Ellie Krug here. Okay. John Blake. Yes. Big fan girl. You heard me fanning. Oh, my God. Uh, John Blake. I just... And the weirdest thing is, okay, before John came on and uh, did the interview, uh, I had been talking with my producer, the lovely um, Brett Johnson, about a talk that I gave uh, at the DFL, as you heard in the A Block, um, uh, on, uh, on Thursday night. And the talk I gave was about hope. And I shared about how there's the reason to hope in Carver County, okay, that we're becoming kinder and gentler to each other and we're not as divided as we were. And then, and then we have John Blake. He comes on the show and he talks about his book, you know, um, more than I imagined about, about how he believes and he's hearing from readers across the country that his book is offering hope. And did you hear what John said? He said, you know, that people are tired of the divisions. People just want to be good to each other. I absolutely believe that, and I'm finding that in my work. I, I am. We just have to get that message out. It's, the, it's, it's you know, it's a counter, and it's not a sexy message. It's not like, oh, we're against them, and, you know, those, you know, darn Republicans and all that. That people... That's not the message that's, you know, talking about hope and how we can be good to each other. We take risks. And look at the journey that John Blake talked about, about the, self, the journey of self-discovery and, 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 and having 
to understand that some things that he believed were wrong. I mean, we're not good with that as humans, but you know what? When we can get past all of that stuff and see people, it is a wonderful place to be. It is. And I found that out on Thursday night when I sat in a room with a bunch of dedicated Democrats and I said, listen, you got to go and you've got to go talk to people who are on the other side. And I said, you know, you don't need to talk about Trump. You don't need to talk about... I said, talk to him about your kids or about your pets. And some people like to talk about their pets more than their kids. And then, and then I got a chuckle when I said that, but it's true. I just, I, I, I just... We need to take risks. We do. John Blake took a risk on his journey with himself. He didn't shut himself off from the possibility that he was wrong. And neither should we shut ourselves off about the possibility that we may be wrong about someone or a group of people. Okay. All right. Let me move on. Um, <clears throat> fear. I want to talk about fear briefly. You know, and I did last night when I spoke, or the Thursday night when I spoke at the DFL I did. I talked about fear, about how we're all afraid. And then when we're afraid, we grab onto things like a crazy would-be dictator who we believe can keep us safe, okay? Well, next week, I'm supposed to go, I was supposed to go up and speak at a hospital in rural Minnesota. <clears throat> we've, been, we've been planning this, planning this since last, since March, that's when the contract got signed for me to go up north. I'm not going to tell you the town, but let's just say it's north, okay? Pretty north. And uh, <clears throat> I was supposed to go and, and do a community event on Tuesday night in this community. And then the next day, spend pretty much the entire day training the entire hospital staff on gray area thinking. And the community event the night before would be gray area thinking. I got done walking Jack yesterday morning, and on the walk I was thinking about, all right, I got to get Jack to the kennel. I got to do some other things. I get, I got to get ready to get ready to go and get in the car on Tuesday. And I was so looking forward to being in the car and doing some leaf peeping, looking at the leaves, seeing the colors on my way to this northern Minnesota town. I got back from walking Jack, checked my email, and there was a message. Ellie, we have to cancel next week. And so I, I talked with them and I heard something at first about scheduling and some shift hadn't, shifts hadn't been scheduled and they needed to, and so there was a snafu internally. <clears throat> but then I also heard, um, and then there were people pushing back, talking about us shoving stuff down their throats. So what I heard there was fear. Fear. So I'm not going to that town. There aren't 100, maybe 200 people that will hear about our good hearts and, and how they can get past the fear of other because that's what gray area thinking is about. They won't get that. They won't because people are afraid. It just, I, you know, I mean, and by the way, it was a contract that I would, I mean, a contract to help me pay my bills. Don't worry, Ellie Krug's going to be just fine. But, but still, you know, I mean, fear and intolerance ripples through the economy 
It does. I can t- attest to that because there have been other events that I've not booked because of fear or have changed in one way or another because of fear of what I represent, what I may say. And by the way, I don't shove anything down anybody's throat. If you've ever been to gray area thinking, you know, just like John Blake talked about, it's a journey. It's a two-hour training that takes you on a journey. And people, in the end, love the journey and the destination. So... And then talking about fear, you may recall, you know, um, I told you the story about the evangelical pastor that I got to know, that I started to know. I met him at Perkins. Remember, I told you that story, and he was a little nervous about meeting the very first transgender person he ever met. Well, he and I have become friends. He asked to get a copy of my book. He asked for my book, okay, which I dropped off with a special inscription. And then he reached out to me a couple weeks ago, said, Ellie, let's go ahead. Let's continue our friendship and let's have lunch. So we went and had lunch last week, okay? You know, and, and uh, we sat down. We're sitting outside having this meal. So he's a lovely man. He really is. I, I, I said, tell me, how did you get in the God business? <laughs> and, I, you know, and, and he's a great storyteller, and I, I think he didn't stop speaking for 20 minutes, but it was just it was delightful to hear, okay? And again, at the end, we gave each other hugs, and then the other day, he asked me, um, he asked me, Ellie, do you know what is the most frequent commandment that's quoted? Do you know what the, he, he sent me a text out of the blue, just what, on Tuesday. He said, Ellie, do you know what the most frequent command that's quoted by religious leaders? He said, fear not. That's the most Frequent command, fear not, because God said, place your trust in me. Come on, we can get past this stuff. All right, moving on. Uh, Minnesota Women's Press, if you follow them, if you read them, write them a check. Go online, give them some money. They are having extraordinarily difficult financial circumstances. They need your support. Minnesota Women's Press, just Google them. Uh, You'll hear more about this in coming up, but they need your help immediately. They do. Um, I'm an advisor to them, and uh, don't worry, I'm going to be writing a big check to them. Next week, uh, we're going to have Juliana uh, Tavares, who is a playwright for Morris Micklewhite and the Tangerine Dress. The world premiere of that play, based on the book, will be on October 14th at Children's Theater Company. If you go, you'll see me there. I happen to be on their board as well. All right, I got to go. My big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, I think we did a good show today. Okay, listeners, thank you for tuning in. Tell others about this show. Share about it. Share the podcast, whatever. And between now and when you hear my voice next, go out and do something to make the world better. Will you do that for me, please? Ellie Krug, over and out.